All right, let's get back into the book of Revelation. Um, I had intended to preach all of Revelation 18 today. That's not going to happen. Uh, I just don't want to. It's like the, the events we see around us necessitate us slowing down a little bit. I mean, we almost see, you know, if you want a newspaper that's not fake news, pick up a Bible. There's no fake news there. There is fake news. Both, Really, there's fake news on the right and the left. I mean, you know, people being taken out of context. I mean, the other day, you know, we were accused by a Christian pastor of preaching that it's okay to rape women and that all Jews go to hell. Of course, we didn't say anything like that. But when you take a man's words out of context, you know, uh, people can make you say whatever you want to say. And the day's going to come when people can actually manipulate video footage to make you do things on video that you didn't do. That's the world we live in, and that's the things that Jesus meant when he said, men will say all evil things about you. But we need to stand firm and let God be the judge and let him be our vindicator. Revelation 17, it's like reading a newspaper. I believe we got through verse 14 last time. We were talking about the judgment of the great whore, Mystery Babylon. I told a Catholic who was trying to overshout the preaching the other day as I preached that Roman Catholicism is, the, is Mystery Babylon, the great whore. And, of course, he went nuts. crowd went nuts. Everybody that hates religion and hates the Catholic priest and all that suddenly become friends of the Catholic Church when a preacher declares the gospel. It's amazing. But uh, it says here that these, the, the beast and the ten horns that, uh, uh, represent the ten kings of the revived Roman Empire, will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. You see, at the end of the day, the Lamb will overcome. History's been written. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with Him, His church, His bride, are called, they're chosen, and they're faithful. Why are we faithful? We're faithful because He is faithful. The Bible says if we believe not, written to Christians, yet He abideth faithful, He cannot deny Himself. Paul said, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. His faith keeps us faithful. So we can rejoice. And then as the angel contends to interpret this vision, this vision of the whore riding the beast in its puppy form, the beast with seven heads and ten horns. He says to her, to John in verse 15, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and tongues and nations. Okay, so he, John was carried away into the wilderness. He saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet beast that had names full of blasphemy with ten heads and uh, seven heads and ten horns, and the whore was decked in purple and scarlet, the colors of both political Rome and papal Rome, decked with gold and precious stones. She had the name Mystery Babylon written on her head. She was drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs. John wondered greatly, wow, this is weird when he saw her. Proof that this is not a picture of the Roman Empire. It was normal for the Roman Empire to persecute Christians. But what John saw stunned him. You know, the persecution, the martyrdom of the saints in the name of Jesus. 
and then the then, then the angel said, "Why are you surprised? I will tell you the mystery." And then he goes on to tell him what these things mean. And apparently, this this beast in the wilderness and this woman riding him is seated, seated upon waters, and these waters stand for people and tongues and tribes and nations. What this means is there's. There's an international influence here, a worldwide influence. This isn't limited to one nation or one kingdom. There's a worldwide influence here. The whore, I believe, is the religious element of the world system, which propels the commercial element into power. The world system has always had a religious and a commercial element, going all the way back to the days of Cain. I believe the fullest manifestation of this great whore is, if you have any knowledge of history, is the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church wields a lot of power, both on the left and the right side of the political spectrum. Make no mistake. And it will be used, particularly after the true church is raptured, to usher in the beast and the one world government. This is Roman Catholicism, the the, uh, religious whore in its fullest form. And we see that the seven heads are seven mountains. Rome was the city built on seven hills in the days of John. There's no denying that historically. The scarlet beast is the Antichrist. It's the Antichrist in its puppy form. That's why it's got one color. If you go to Revelation 13, it's multicolored. It's an adult form in its full power. This is the Antichrist in its puppy form, the first half of the tribulation. He then becomes the eighth king. Eighth king when he takes over the world. The seven heads represent Rome, the seven hills of Rome, and the seven successive imperial kingdoms that this false religious system is built upon. We talked about Assyria and Egypt, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then the revived Roman Empire, all things that are talked about in Daniel's visions and that we see in the history of Israel and nations that were used to try to persecute or eradicate her. The ten horns are ten kings that arise from the seventh head together with the beast. So the seventh head is that seventh form of an imperial world kingdom, the revived Roman Empire that's going to come up very quickly in the last days and continue for a short time. And the ten kings arise out of that one hour with the beast. And so that's where we are. And then all of this is seated upon waters, which are the people of the earth, the sheeple of the earth. The only way that these things can come to pass is when men are sheep, when men follow the crowd, when they follow the hysteria, when they do what everybody else is doing, the mob mentality. And that's been the case in nations all around the world for centuries because these people aren't used to having freedom. Here in America, we've had freedom. We've had certain things in our DNA. You're not just going to take guns away from Americans. It's been in our DNA for 200 years. But as you begin to see a sheeple or mob mentality build even here, you start to wonder, well, maybe people will give them up because that sheeple mentality... Uh, often leads to men and kingdoms gaining dictatorial power. That's the, 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 uh, that's the lesson of history. People are more concerned today here in America, really. There are people more concerned about what the scores will be in the football games today 
than they are about people literally right in the open stealing elections down in Florida. They just don't care. In fact, polling shows that in this recent midterm election, the top concern in the minds of people was health care. Health care. Pre-existing conditions. Do you realize how foolish that is? When you consider if there's nothing going on these days and we're living in peace and everything's well, maybe that would be a concern. But with all that's going on around us in this world, health care is the top issue. Whether you have coverage for pre-existing conditions, I understand that foolishness in the eyes of the world, but not in the church. And you'd be surprised how many Christian people vote according to health care and care nothing about the slaughter of unborn babies in our country. That's madness. That's madness. When, when, what happened to the days when we as Christians could trust the Lord with our health and that we could trust the local church to come alongside and meet needs within our body and say we trust the government to do it? And health care in this country is a joke. You can have all the insurance in the world, but it's going to find a way not to cover you. Talk to Brother Brandon Gwaltney and the mess he's going through with his wife, Leslie, and the surgery she's going to have for a cochlear implant. You know, he pays all these thousands of dollars for insurance, and they don't cover stuff. So, I mean, it's just that foolish, sheeple mentality exemplified in what people care about nowadays that's going to allow these things to be ushered in. The waters, the peoples of the earth, sheeple. It's interesting because Daniel sees a vision of four Gentile kingdoms that will arise from his day to the end of time. Okay? So he sees uh, these, the, the, he interprets the statue for Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, and then in, later on in chapter 7, he sees these same kingdoms arise out of the water, and man sees kingdoms as precious metals. That's Nebuchadnezzar's perspective in chapter 2. God sees what we see as precious, as vile. But in Daniel chapter 7, we see that his vision here with regard to Israel matches what John sees with regard to the whole world. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. It's out of the strife of peoples that these beasts arise. And if you study history, these imperial kingdoms arose out of strife, out of the strife of people, of a sea of people. John calls these waters, the same waters that Daniel sees striving, are interpreted from him as peoples of the earth. It's out of strife that these things will arise. And all around us is strife. All around us is strife. The whore, the religious whore here in Revelation 17, that false religious spirit of Antichrist has a worldwide influence. That's why the people are nations and tongues and tribes. A worldwide influence. You know, going back to the time of Constantine all the way up till today, the Roman Catholic ecclesiastical monster has had a worldwide influence. It's not as active. It's not openly burning Christians at the stake like it used to. But it has an influence. The Roman Catholic ecclesiastical monsters, what gave us Islam? Muhammad's mother 
was a pawn of the Catholic Church made to believe that her son was a prophet. And it was a tool to try to get the Holy Land back or get it in possession of the Catholics. And of course, you know what happens is when years later when Muhammad, who really doesn't belong in the same sentence as the word prophet. I mean, when you look at the Quran, um, you've got three people involved. You've got Muhammad who never wrote down anything. He didn't write down anything. In fact, the Quran never says who wrote it down. You've got Gabriel, a 600-winged angel that supposedly dictated the words of Allah to Muhammad. But Allah never spoke to Muhammad. It was supposedly an angel. And so what you've got is you've got these three individuals that don't talk to each other and can't claim who even wrote down what's in his book. I mean, it's a really, it's stupidity. I mean, Muhammad was a really stupid individual. I mean, I don't know what other word to describe it. In fact, when people draw cartoons of Muhammad the prophet or things from Islam, they're really doing the work of, I mean, that's not fake news because the Quran really is a cartoon when you read it. It's, it's, it's amazing. There's no prophecy in it. Muhammad never prophesied anything that didn't come already, that wasn't already written down in the Bible. Muhammad never performed any miracles. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. Jesus did everything in front of all these witnesses. Moses, a prophet of God, did miracles. But yet we're supposed to believe that Muhammad's the last prophet and he couldn't do any of the things that prophets did in the Bible. I mean, it's ludicrous. But Islam is a product of Roman Catholic politics. You've got um, Roman Catholics in positions of power all over this world, influence on both the right and the left. I mean, our Supreme Court is mostly Catholics. Um, this Kavanaugh that, every, that was in the news recently, he's a Catholic. In fact, he took the monies from the GoFund account and, and gave it to Catholic charities. The same Catholic charities that are on the left side are all about bringing all the migrants and the immigrants across the border, the open border, the Catholic charities, because follow the money. For every immigrant they bring in, they get money from the government. It's all a tangled mess. There's influence on the right and the left in high positions of power. You know, Spurgeon, I, I like to read Spurgeon's morning and evening devotions, and a lot of Christians would hold him in high esteem. And I was reading the other day, it was the anniversary... Um, on, on, on November 5th is the anniversary of a Catholic uh, terrorist plot that was discovered in 1605. And had that been successful, something I've got sitting right here on this pulpit wouldn't even be here today. Does anybody know what happened in 1605? 1605, the Jesuits plotted to blow up the English parliament. Uh, and this plot was uncovered at the last minute. So there was a Catholic plot to blow up the English House of Government. And it was out of that parliament that Puritans began to lobby the king that we need a standard English Bible that can go out into all the world. And that was Satan's attempt to stop the translation and the publication of the King James Bible with the Catholic Church. Very Catholic. They always burned Bible translators at the stake and tried to stop God's word from getting into the hands of the people. You know, the Catholics hate the Bible in the hands of the common man, just like Islam does. 
Because when somebody picks up a Bible and begins to read it for themselves, they see very quickly that what the church is teaching and what the imams are teaching doesn't square with the Word of God. And so they don't want the Bible in the hands of the common man. But Spurgeon, it was November 5th morning reading, was talking about how on that anniversary that it happened. This is what he said. His prayer to God was, God grant us more and more hatred for Antichrist. And in the context of his devotion, Antichrist is the Pope. Grant us more and more hatred of Antichrist and hasten the day of her entire extinction. That was the attitude of the reformers and the great preachers about the Catholic Church because they saw how evil it was. Today we just want to buddy up with everybody. So the, the whore has a worldwide influence. I believe this will involve the Pope and Roman Catholicism, particularly after the rapture. When the rapture happens and the church is gone, whatever's less, people are going to be wanting answers. And the quote-unquote Christian influence left behind, Catholicism will provide the answers that will deceive the world and help usher the Antichrist into power. The waters of the earth, the sheeple of the earth that just follow right along. But we need not, as Christians, be too worried about those things. Christ is coming for His church. We don't need to worry about Antichrist. Okay, He'll come in His time. The Spirit is alive and well. And it behooves us to know Him so we can know His Spirit and not be deceived. But when it's all said and done, I found an interesting passage in the Psalms. Psalm 29. Now here we have the beast and the horns and the whore wielding influence over the waters of the peoples of the earth. But it says in Psalm 29.10, The Lord sitteth upon the flood. Yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. You know, at the end of, at the end of it all, it's God that will sit on the waters. It's the king who will rule over the waters. So all of these things may or may not happen. I mean, may, will happen. And Satan doesn't know God's timetable. So even he's in the dark. But when it's all said and done, the Lord will sit upon the waters. His anointed will rule. And God will be glorified in all the earth. God's mocked on these campuses, but he will be glorified in all the earth. And when Jesus comes back, we're going to see the judgment of the commercial side of the kingdom of the beast in chapter 18. And then we're going to see what that looks like in chapter 19 when Christ comes back. And I said this many times on the campuses these last couple of weeks. When Jesus returns, he does not come to take sides. He comes to take over. And when he takes over, both Republicans and Democrats will perish. Both communists and conservatives will perish. Nations will perish. And he will be glorified in all the earth. We've talked in chapter 17 about this, uh, this vision that John sees as interpreted. The great whore, the scarlet beast. We talked about her introduction in the first two verses. Her description. Her involvement with the beast. And um, we've talked about... Uh, her, uh, now we're going to get into verses 16 and 17. talks about her destruction. Her destruction. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God 
shall be fulfilled. So you have this horrible apparition that's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs that's steering the beast and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, the uh, revived Roman Empire and those ten kings. She's in a p- place of uh, a position of influence like a rider on a horse. But now you see these ten horns, these ten kings, the same ten horns from Daniel's vision. The, 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 the revived rulers of the revived Roman Empire turn on her. Turn on her and destroy her. She's used to help usher in power. And when her usefulness is done, the devil does what he's done from time immemorial. When he's done using you, he turns on you. The devil has no allegiance. The devil hates those he uses. In fact, I've you know, said many times out there in all the rockets, don't you understand the devil that you praise hates you and will destroy you. This whore is used, this false religious system is used to usher the beast or the Antichrist into power and then she is disposed of. She's no longer useful. The book of Daniel, you can't understand Revelation without Daniel. Daniel's focus is the Jewish people. Revelation is the world. Daniel tells us why the false religious system will be no longer useful. Turn to Daniel chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 36, and I'll read a few verses here. Here we've got a prophecy of Antichrist. We have a type which was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes about 150 B.C. in the time of the Maccabees when he uh, desecrated the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar. And then the Bible does what it characteristically does. It telescopes from a type to the last days. And we're, we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes that was fulfilled literally several hundred years later. And then we get to verse 35 and it says it telescopes even to the time of the end. So now we've got the prophet telescoping to the time of the end. So now starting with verse 36, we're talking about Antichrist. Okay. He had been talking about the king of the north. And then that's a type of antichrist. You see, the devil doesn't know God's timetable. Okay? The devil doesn't know when God is going to tell his son to come get his church. The devil doesn't know when the last days, the time of Jacob's trouble will arise. So he's always got somebody waiting in the wings. He's always got someone groomed to be the one world ruler in every generation. Because he doesn't know God's timetable. So there's many types throughout history. You know, perhaps the devil in his mind thought he had groomed Adolf Hitler to be this man of sin, this this, uh, world ruler. And then he found out, wait a minute, this isn't God's timetable. Man, I got to get someone else. The devil doesn't know God's timetable. That's why you have types and antitypes in Scripture. And here you have Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of the north, out of the Greek empire, uh, a type of Antichrist that tried to exterminate the Jews and God delivered them. That's where they get the Feast of Hanukkah from. In the New Testament, when it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem at the Feast of the Dedication, that's the Feast of Hanukkah, when God preserved the lights in the temple in the intertestamental period. But now we get to a king, a king that has the king of the north and the king of the south come at him. So it's proof in the text that we're talking about something different. This is the time of the end. And the king, that is Antichrist, shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself 
and magnify himself above every God. That means the Pope. That means the God that the Catholic Church preaches. And shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that is determined shall be done. He's going to prosper until what God has determined is done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. We've talked about this verse, an indication I believe that the man of sin will have, will have some Jewish connection. I mean, the Jews would never follow a false Messiah that wasn't a Jew. Okay? Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. He won't even be moved by the normal lust of, uh, uh, of mankind. Nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. So if he's going to magnify himself above all, anything that stands in his way of doing that has to be destroyed. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. That's why the whore is no longer useful. That's why the religious system is no longer useful. She guides him as a puppy, but in adult form, the beast turns and destroys her. It's just like these people that bring these wild animals into their homes, okay? What was, there was a, a story some years ago. A woman had a chimp, maybe some kind of a monkey, she raised from a little baby monkey and loved on it and everything. But then one day, the chimp just ripped her face off. I mean, that's what wild animals, that's what a wild beast does. And so he, through these ten horns, turns upon her because she's no longer useful. The man of sin, the Antichrist, magnifies himself above all. And in that... He becomes the eighth. We see seven, I mean, seven heads, which are seven kings, is told us here in this passage. And then Antichrist himself is the eighth. The beast is the eighth. So you have the revived Roman Empire, the first half of the tribulation, and that produces the one world government under the rule of one man, which is the eighth kingdom. As... Regards the false religious system, the Roman Catholicism, what she has done to so many others throughout history will be done to her. That's the lesson here. We, I call it divine karma. You know, we use karma. Karma in a Buddhist worldview is this attitude that you reap what you sow through the natural progression of things. But the biblical view is divine karma. Divine karma comes down from God. God is not mocked. It happens because God is not mocked. What a man sows in the ground, he will reap. And we have an example of this. That one who has been used by the devil throughout history to slaughter Bible believers and to overthrow kingdoms and to try to stamp out the biblical gospel will have done to her what she did to so many. Divine karma. And I think we should pray for this. I think we should pray for this in our country when it comes to the wicked. David prayed against wickedness and against wicked people that what was done by them would be done to them. Not by us. Vengeance is not ours, but by God. That God would arise. You know, we live in a society, if you study the French Revolution, it was very different than the American Revolution. The French Revolution was built upon fear and hysteria. 
much like what we see in America today. And it got so bad that people were condemned based on accusations. You could accuse somebody of something and then they'd be on the guillotine. J'accuse, they used to say in French. I accuse you. And if you were accused, you were condemned. We saw this paraded before our eyes with that Supreme Court judge hearing recently. That's what gave us the Salem witch trials in the 1600s. It's all around people guilty by virtue of an accusation. Just because a guy, a governor, who was elected by the people questions obvious criminal activity in vote counting, he's accused of being a racist. Because the woman counting the votes happens to be black, and then that's paraded all across the news media, and he's being told he needs to recuse himself. Why should he recuse himself? He's the governor elected by the people. But we live in a j'accuse society. But what these accusers don't realize, because they never learn from history, is those that accuse and put others on the guillotine end up on the guillotine themselves. If you study the French Revolution, the revolutionaries that accused ended up being accused and on the guillotine themselves. That's divine karma, and we see it played out here with the destruction of this religious whore. The same happened in Nazi Germany. There's a lot of similarities today to what was called the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic was the German government between World War I and World War II. The economy went down the tube. Germany was punished horribly at the Treaty of Versailles, as she should have been, but it provided the seeds of anger and hysteria that would lead to the rise of Hitler. And what Hitler was able to use to get the power, I mean, Hitler was a drunk and a little private in World War I, just a nobody, and was a homeless dude trying to play for money on the streets. And just so quickly, a man rose out of nothing. That's, that's what Satan does. And he was able to gain influence and power through hostile mobs, very much like what we see here in America today with Antifa. They were called the brown shirts. They were just groups. You know, the Weimar Republic was a time of discouragement and depression economic collapse, and a whole lot of immorality on the streets in Germany. Gay bars, all kinds of stuff we see today. And the people were getting quite tired of it. And then there were socialists that were kind of taken over on the left wing. And so these brown shirt mobs kind of went out and started terrorizing people. <coughs> and Hitler used these brown shirt mobs to terrorize Jews, to terrorize socialists, to terrorize those that were living in open immorality. And they were thugs and gangs. And when, when Hitler came to power, they had their own regiments and everything like that. But then the time came when those very thugs that were used to get Hitler and the Nazis' power became a threat to them. And so the Secret Service talked Hitler into exterminating them. And, and the head of the brown shirts was one of Hitler's best friends. And then one day, it was, in the, uh, it was in 1934, in the 20s and the 30s, the brown shirt mobs are what gave the German people Hitler because the people wanted law and order. And in 1934, you had what was called the Night of the Long Knives where Hitler ordered the SS to go out and round up these brown shirts and, and kill them, execute them. Rome himself, Ernst Rome, Hitler's best friend, was executed. He was in a prison... And the Secret Service guards went in there and handed him a Browning pistol and said, you got 10 minutes to kill yourself, do it with dignity, and if you don't, we're going to come back and kill you. 
and he just refused to do it. So when they came back 10 minutes later, he had his shirt off and he was standing there with his chest out in defiance and they just killed him. You know, they served their purpose and then they were executed. So what these people today don't realize is they're just pawns. These left-wing radicals and all of these people are pawns. And when their usefulness is done, they will meet the demise that they are crying to be put upon good people. It's history. The only thing men ever learn from history is that men never learn from history. It's amazing. I I was on one particular campus and it was... The kids were actually listening. I was talking and I... I express that. So, you know, I used to be a history teacher, and I talked about some things our founding fathers warned us about. And then this girl, who claimed to be a history major, started arguing with me that George Washington was not the first president of the United States. And then the crowd agreed with her. They said, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. And I thought to myself, this is what college is in America today. This girl is probably in an insurmountable amount of debt to go to school there, her or her parents, and she's paying all this money to go to school, and then she comes out thinking that the opposite of what a child knows, and argued with me in public that George Washington was not the first president of the United States. I wouldn't send my kids to a college in this country if my life depended on it. And you may think it's necessary. I wouldn't send them anywhere if I had to make that decision today. If they want to go, then they can pay for it. But I've been on enough campuses, Christian campuses as well, to know that kids aren't getting an education. They're being brainwashed and taught propaganda. So who's the fool? Who's the fool? The ones teaching this stuff or the parents or those that see it with their own eyes and still send their kids to do it? Insane. You can have a library card, an internet connection, and a laptop and get more of an education than you could sitting through any college program to get any degree. A degree is meaningless. We just need to open our eyes and see. Meaningless. Unless something changes, I don't foresee my kids going to college. If they want to go to a community school and learn a trade, that's one thing. But I wouldn't put my children in any of those college campuses that I I went to, and some of those are renowned. I wouldn't put them there if my life depended on But the wicked end up falling into the traps that they have laid for others. In chapter 17, back here in Revelation, there's an interesting phrase here that um, describes the destruction of this whore at the, at the hands of the beast, the, the, the one world government, the revived Roman Empire, the ten horns, which are evil, and at the hands of Antichrist himself. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God be fulfilled. You see, even the devil can't help but fulfill God's will because God governs all. It's not good versus evil. God's above all that. He's transcendent. He's the creator. And all of these things that people think they're doing to enact social justice is to fulfill God's will, to usher in the consummation, which is not a president. It's not a red wave. It's a Messiah. It's a Messiah that rules in righteousness. We don't need a democracy. 
Democracies always fail. What we're seeing today in America is exactly what our founding fathers knew was inevitable. It's been a grand experiment. It lasted a long time, much longer than other such experiments because of the safeguards that were put in the Constitution. First of all, we're not a democracy. That's a lie. It's not true. We're a representative republic. It was a grand experiment. But even our founding fathers knew that what they had designed was designed for a moral, upright, and God-fearing people. And when the people ceased to be these things, it would no longer work. The experiment was interesting. It was long. It bore fruit. But we are seeing that that experiment has failed. Man-made government always fails. We don't need a president. We don't need a congress. We need a messiah. And that's what the rise and fall of kingdoms proves throughout history. It's what it teaches. We need a righteous Messiah. But there's some interesting things we learn in, in, in the scriptures concerning God's role in the rise and fall of wickedness that make a lot of Christians uncomfortable. But we're interested in knowing God as He reveals Himself, not as we think He should be. You know, I had somebody on a campus yelling and screaming down the preacher the other day, claiming to be a Christian, saying God should do this, God should do that, God should love everybody, God shouldn't care whether you're gay or not. Well, who are you to tell God what He should do? He's the Creator. Who are you to tell God what He should do? What an arrogant thing. What an arrogant thing. But look at Amos chapter 3 in the Old Testament. This, This is a passage rarely ever preached from. People don't know what to do with it. The prophet asked some rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions have an obvious answer. The answer's obvious, and they're asked to make a point. Verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? Can we yoke up with so-called believers in ministry if we're not agreed about basic truths? Those of us who cringe and despise abortion in this country, can we yoke up with pro-life Catholics when we have such profound differences on the nature of the gospel? Well, obviously, no. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he hasn't captured something or taken anything? Well, no. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth when there's not a trap or a gin? Will a bird fall into a trap when there's no trap there? Of course not. Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Will a trapper take up his trap if he's not caught anything? Of course not. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? Is there evil and, and evil, the word evil here that's being talked about, doesn't, it's not talking about sin, it's talking about judgment, disaster. Shall these things happen and it's not the Lord that does it? Of course it's the Lord that does it. But here's what makes God different than the gods of man-made religion. God is behind even the rise and fall of evil and judgment. You know, look at California right now. I look at the newspapers and I see words like apocalyptic, biblical, gates of hell used to describe these wildfires. And does anybody that reads that, do the people that write that actually pause to consider that that's exactly what it is? It's a biblical judgment upon a nation? 
you know, go back. We, you know, we had that, that eclipse, that full eclipse that traveled across the country some couple years ago. And I talked about then how these things are signs in the heavens given to the wicked about impending judgment. That was the sign of the prophet Jonah that, jo- that, uh, um, that Jesus spoke about. There was a full eclipse that passed literally over the Assyrian Empire. In that year. And the people knew something was up. And that's why their hearts were ready to receive. What. um, Jonah came preaching. It's a wicked generation that seeks after a sign. Jesus said no sign will be given to it. But the sign of prophet Jonah. You know. These things in the heaven portend things. Look at all that's happened since then. Those hurricanes that just hung off the coast. That hurricane that recently came up. From Florida moved so fast. And destroyed all these wildfire school shootings. And nobody even talks about all those that were mowed down in Las Vegas. Nobody even talks about it anymore. Even wonders what was behind that. We've got elections being stolen. We've got mobs trying to bang down people's door in the middle of the night. No one even stops to consider that we're under God's judgment. And the remedy is not a, an election. It's repentance. It's humility. It's fear of God, like Thomas Jefferson talked about. I fear for my country when I reflect that God is just and His justice does not sleep. It doesn't sleep. These fires are God's judgment. The confusion and division in our society is God's judgment. God's not the author of confusion in the churches. But oh, is He when it comes to the people. When people turn on each other, they're a nation under God's judgment. God is behind it, but... Verse 7, surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealeth the secret unto his service of prophets. Here's what makes God unique compared to the gods of false man-made religion, Allah, who just randomly throws judgment out there for no reason, who turns a whole village of Jewish fishermen into monkeys just because they're Jews, who sends fish, supposedly, on the Sabbath day, the Jewish fishermen would fish all week and they'd catch nothing. And so on the Sabbath day... Allah would send fish to literally jump out of the water and say, hey, I'm here, I'm here to tempt the people to fish on the Sabbath. And when they finally do because they're starving, he turns them all into monkeys or he destroys the village. That's the kind of cartoonish garbage that's in the Quran, in the Hadith, the oral tradition. But the God of the Bible is the author of judgment. He's the author of evil or disaster. I'm not talking evil in the sense of sin, but evil in the sense of disaster and judgment like we see with fires and earthquakes. Economic collapses. He's the author. He he is the one that does these things to fulfill his will, but he doesn't do it without warning. You know, all of these things we see aren't just thrown upon a people without warning. God always warns before he judges and gives people an opportunity to repent. That's mercy. That's merciful. You see, people wanted to trap, want to trap you when you start preaching the gospel in these campuses. They all have the same arguments, the same verses they looked up on the internet. They want to get you trapped in, in well, well, you're wearing, you're wearing socks that are, that are polyester and wool mixed together. You eat shellfish or, you know, God says it's okay to rape women or whatever. And they start trying to pull these verses out of context in the Old Testament. So I've learned to just preface any of this I'm not going to stand here today and make a single apology or an excuse for a single word written in the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy. God's law is righteous. God's law is righteous, and I'm not going to make an excuse for it. 
If you want to know how to clean up a nation, look at the law that God gave to Israel. God said in Deuteronomy 4 that this law I'm giving you will be a lesson to the nations that can look and see what righteous law this is. We're not under the curse of the law as believers, but if we want to know how to clean up a nation, we can look at what God gave to Israel and its government. We don't need to apologize for that. But God always gives warning before he dispenses judgment. That's mercy. The Canaanites were warned. They were given opportunity to repent, and God sent Israel in there to wipe the place out. Wicked, wicked people. We don't need to apologize for that. But they had warning. Rahab and the ones that housed the spies, her and her family, were delivered. They were given warning. They heeded and were rescued. And she became a progenitor in the line of the Messiah. God is merciful. Psalm 17, 13 flies in the face of a lot in terms of their idea of God. Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down. This is the persecutor of David. He's praying to be delivered. Deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword. Here we have David saying that the wicked is God's sword. In other words, it's God's sword to reap judgment. God uses the wicked as his sword. I didn't write it. In Exodus 9, through Moses, God told Pharaoh that it, Pharaoh that it was I who raised you up. I raised you up for this purpose. Everything you're doing, everything you think you're going to try to do with Israel, I'm the one that raised you up for a purpose. Isaiah 10, we've talked about this passage numerous times in this study of Revelation. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. Oh, Assyrian. The Assyrian here is the Antichrist. It's very clear in the context. Oh, Assyrian, the rod of my anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. The Antichrist is the rod of God's anger upon Israel. Even the Antichrist is his rod of correction. What does the rise of Antichrist in the tribulation serve to do? Two purposes. God's wrath to be upon a wicked world and to wake up the people of Israel. And God will use a rod to wake her up. And that rod is Antichrist. God is in control of all these things. And the wicked don't even realize that they're fulfilling his will. And his will... Is for his saints to live and reign with him in a kingdom of righteousness under the Messiah, his anointed. Prophesied all the way back in the Garden of Eden, right alongside a prophet. The very first prophecy of Christ is also the very first prophecy of Antichrist. The seed of the serpent is the Antichrist. The seed of the woman is the Christ who will crush his head. All of these things we see are God's judgment. Why are we afraid to speak of that? Why are we afraid to speak of storms and national, natural disasters and chaos as God's judgment? Man preaches and teaches today that he came from a beast. We came from monkeys. We came from a beast. No wonder kids shoot and kill each other all the time. God says, okay, you came from a beast. I'll give you a beast to rule over you. That's what he does in Antichrist. God told Israel in the desert, you want meat? I'll give you meat. They were swimming in the quails. They landed on that, on that camp. 
And they just went to nuts, just lusting, just feeding their faces, and then they were destroyed of a plague. I want, I'll give you meat. You want meat? I'll give you meat till you're puking it up. A lot of times we speak our own judgment. Israel told Moses, you brought us out here in this desert to die here. God says, you said it. You will die here. All of you 20 years old and upward will die here. And there wasn't a single one of them left when Israel went into the land except for Joshua and Caleb. That's it. Even in God's judgment, He delivers those that fear Him. Here at the end of the chapter, we, we see the destruction. This false religious system typified by the Roman Catholic Church will be destroyed. It'll be used. It'll usher in this last world power. It'll usher in Antichrist and then He will turn upon it and use his lackeys to destroy her, just like uh, was done in Nazi Germany. The Roman Catholic monster will be destroyed, and uh, it'll have done to her what she did to so many others. It's God's judgment, and all of these things must happen to fulfill his will. In verse 18, we have a final portrayal of this mystery Babylon. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Here we have a final portrayal. Two truths are evident here. The false religious system is portrayed as a city, a great city. And number two, this city reigns over kings and has a worldwide influence. Of what, if we look at just history, instead of trying to predict the future... If we look just at history, going back to even before Christ, what city in history can it truly be said thus, that she reigned over kings of the earth? What city in all of history? I mean, if, you're, if you even have a casual knowledge of world history, it's none other than Rome. How could it not be Rome? How could it not? The Roman Catholic Church has literally... The Roman Empire which produced the Roman Catholic Church, which will in turn reproduce the revival of the Roman Empire, literally controlled nation states and kings. Kings and presidents have quaked in their boots in the presence of the Pope for many years. Today's political leaders in the USA do the same thing. That's why the Catholic Church can get away with priests molesting all these kids and the Pope make excuses for it and there's a little bit of a rage in the media but nothing ever happens. She wields great power. The political Roman Empire produced the religious ecclesiastical Roman Catholic monster, which will in turn produce the political revived Roman Empire. We see in Daniel's vision of the great statue that the fourth kingdom, which we know to be Rome, because in Daniel 9 we're told it's the people uh, that destroyed the temple which we know to be the Romans. We see two legs. This represents two legs, two phases. The initial Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire, and in between is a gap. You know, every, le every a person's two legs have a gap. In between that gap is the church age, the time from Pentecost to the rapture. In between that gap is religious Rome wielding its influence to, to produce the political power that was once there in the time of Christ. All of this ties back to verse 9 in chapter 17. That 
Here's the mind which has wisdom. We need discernment to know the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. And there are seven kings. And we've discussed all of that. So now we're at the end of chapter 17. In 17, we have one angelic witness who was one of the angels that had the seven vials come and explain to John the judgment of the great whore. So chapter 17 is not the judgment of the beast. It's the judgment of the whore that sits upon the beast in its puppy form. She's called Mystery Babylon. And she's drunk with the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. So we have an entity that's drunk with saints and martyrs of Jesus. She's drunk with with those of the New Testament church. This is in the church age. Okay, She's drunk with these things. Mystery Babylon. That means it's not literal Babylon. It's a mystery. Okay, That's chapter 17. The religious element of the world system will fall. Now we get to chapter 18. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. So what we have here that is key, this is key, and after these things. So this is something different. Something different. After this judgment of the whore, John sees something else. And it's another angel that comes down and announces it. So we don't have one of the vile angels explaining something. We have another angel come down and make an announcement. This is key. If you remember the chronology, um, we got to the end of chapter 11 in in, in the narrative pause. We have the temple of God opened in heaven. Okay, We had the seventh trumpet judgment. Then the temple of God is open. And then the, the chronology doesn't pick back up until chapter 15, verse 5, when again the temple is open and then the seven angels with the seven vials come out to sound. And then we see the vile judgments. Now we've got a parenthesis. Not moving the narrative along. It moves along in chapter 19 when Christ comes back. But explaining the judgment here. The seven seals are the seals of judgment that Christ opens the title deed of the earth to claim what is here. The seventh seal is the seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet is the seven vile judgments. And so we're at the end of those things, okay? And so we're being, we're, we're, we're sh- being shown the judgment of the world system. It's religious element, chapter 17, and then something different here in chapter 18. I believe this is the judgment of the commercial element of the world system. The world system going all the way back to Cain has always had a religious element and it's always had a commercial element. It was Cain's progeny that built the first cities. And the commercial centers throughout history have been the seas and the cesspools of iniquity and religious idolatry. Chapter 17, I believe, is the first half of the tribulation up to its midpoint. The Antichrist is in his puppy form. And then chapter 18 is the end of the tribulation. So we have a picture of God's judgment upon that which ushers Antichrist into power, chapter 17. Here at chapter 18, we have a picture of that which is ushered into power is judged. So the religious element produces the commercial element, which is then judged at the end of the tribulation. It was Babel that produced the false religious system that's continued down through the ages. 
And that false religious system ultimately produces the Babylon here, which is men gathered together to overthrow God, just like they were. Remember, God confounded the languages. Now it's all going back. Every, most people, a lot of people around the world understand the international language of the end times English. It's all moving back. Satan's trying to do again what he did at Babel. And this time he won't be overthrown by a confusion of languages. He'll be overthrown by the Messiah himself. Babel produced the false religious system which produces commercial Babylon. The Roman Empire produced the Roman Catholic Church which will give us the revised Roman Empire. The world system. Okay. This is Babylon. Another angel came down with great power and the earth was lightened with his glory and he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of her wrath, of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So here we have the judgment of the world system. The religious element produces the kingdom of Antichrist. And now the kingdom of Antichrist is judged. Mystery Babylon gives us Babylon. Mystery Babylon is judged by Babylon. And now Babylon is judged. The world system. The first three verses here we have a declaration of doom against the world system. In, chap- in, in chapter 18, verses 4 through 8, we'll see that this doom involves collateral damage that can be a spiritually applied to us right now. Verses 9 through 19, we have a courtroom reaction. You ever watched a courtroom scene where a sentence is given and everybody gasp? That's what we're going to have here, a courtroom reaction. And then the righteous in verse 20 are invited to celebrate the judgment. And then in the last three verses of the chapter, that's verse 20, verses 21 through 24, we have an epitaph of eradication. So I'll just introduce this. I want, I want to end with something here. Give me a few minutes. The first three verses, we have a declaration of doom against the world system. After these things, something else, after the judgment of the whore, another angel... Not the angel of chapter 17. Perhaps it's the same one we see back in chapter 14. Remember, we had those snapshots from the last half of the tribulation, the snapshot of assembly, the snapshot of judgment. We had those three angelic messengers. One of them was preaching the gospel, the everlasting gospel. Remember, we talked about the four forms of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the grace of God, what Paul called my gospel. And the gospel of the everlasting gospel. Then the second angel messenger, verse 8, there followed another saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That's been announced. Now we're going to see what that looks like. So perhaps this other angel is the one that announced it in chapter 14, verse 8. It's interesting because these same things we're going to read about in chapter 18 are, 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 are written about in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The Bible, the New Testament does not replace the Old Testament. It confirms it. You know, there's no New Testament doctrine that cannot be found in seed form, at least, in the Old Testament. Even the rapture of the churches in the Old Testament. 
we do err acting as if the New Testament replaces the Old Testament. It doesn't. The Old Testament is a foundation. And upon that foundation is erected the body of Christ, the building, the church, the New Testament. When you take the foundation out, the building falls. Be careful of these Christian groups that get stuck in the Sermon on the Mount. And they judge everything by that and they ignore the epistles that were written directly to the church. They ignore the Jewish foundation of our faith. Beware of these things. But in Isaiah 13, the prophet sees the burden of Babylon. This is before Babylon arises. This is detailed prophecy long before Babylon was in control. It was in Isaiah's day. It was the Assyrians that dominated the world. Remember at the end of Hezekiah's reign, these ambassadors came from Babylon, this little unknown kingdom, and he showed them all the buildings of the temple and all of his riches. And Isaiah asked him, who are these people? And let, uh, uh, Hezekiah said, I mean, uh, Hezekiah said, well, they were just some ambassadors, and he was bragging about his riches. And Isaiah said, you know, those ambassadors one day that came here and saw all those things, one day out of that people, the temple itself would be destroyed. And so what was a little tiny, un, un, uh, uh, uninfluential kingdom that, Nebuch- uh, that not Nebuchadnezzar, Hezekiah bragged to about his riches, sometime later would rise up and be a powerful kingdom that would overthrow Assyria and destroy the temple. So these were the days of Isaiah long before Babylon was a world power. The burden of Babylon, the burden, that means the burdens, you know, what he was called to preach was a burden. Chapter 13, verse 1. <coughs> now turn to verses 19 and set in the context. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, which was not a kingdom when Isaiah prophesied this. The beauty of the Chaldees' excellency shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited. Neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there. Neither shall the shepherds make their fold there. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there. That's the burden. That's a prophecy upon Babylon. Now Babylon was overthrown by the Persians in 539. BC. We see this in Daniel chapter 5. Remember the handwriting on the wall, Belshazzar's feast, they snuck in, rerouted the Euphrates River, snuck up in through the manholes and up through the city. But did Babylon become, after its overthrow, what's described here? No, we've already talked about that. Babylon's never been a place that's not inhabited. There's been other cities built up on it and over a long period of time God judged it. Peter was there as a missionary in, in his days, witnessing to the Jews. You know, there were those in the Middle Ages that talked about only Jews living there. Now you've got houses in Baghdad, Iraq, that are built with bricks that have stamps from Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon on it. So when we read this prophecy here, historically we have not seen this fulfilled, and then we go to Revelation, we're seeing the same thing that Isaiah saw. Okay, The same thing. And Isaiah says it will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. What did that look like? It happened in an instant, and it was a complete and total obliteration. That area today in Israel is just salt pits. There's nothing there. There's no ruins. There's nothing. That's what this destruction will be. Complete and total and in an instant. That's why I would say these things here have not been fulfilled. And perhaps there will be a literal city of Babylon erected uh, as the seat of Antichrist's kingdom. 
When we see things like Sodom and Gomorrah, the destruction of kingdoms, and all of this, they are an example. They're given to us to teach us. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says these words. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. What does Sodom and Gomorrah teach us? It teaches us what awaits the ungodly. It teaches us how God views lust and fornication and going after strange flesh, which was the sin of Sodom. Judah's clear about that. It's an example. Solomon Gomorrah ought to be an example to us today as a nation. That those of us who want to choose to live ungodly, judgment awaits. And what will happen to the world system, its fall will bear the same fruit of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ruin. In fact, when we look at the first three verses of chapter 18. Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, has become the habitation of devils, the hold of every foul spirit, a cage of every clean and unhateful bird. This will be Babylon during the millennium. It will be overthrown, the world system, perhaps even a literal city that will be the capital will be overthrown and during the millennial reign of Christ, it's ruin. No one will live there. It'll be the habitation of devils and every foul spirit will be there as a reminder throughout all of the millennium. This will stand as a reminder for a thousand years. Ruin is a reminder. But we never seem to learn. In fact, the people living under the rule of Christ won't learn. Because at the end of the millennium, what happens? Satan is loose for a little season. And he doesn't find it difficult to gather those from the four corners of the earth to go up against Jerusalem, against the Christ, and against his saints. And what happens? Exactly what happens to Babylon at the end of the tribulation. Fire comes down from heaven and destroys the camp. Men never learn. There'll be ruin in the millennium to remind those of God's judgment on wickedness. But it won't matter. Because man in his best state is altogether vanity and he will always fail. The dispensations of God's dealing with man, whether it's innocence in the Garden of Eden, the law under Moses, grace under the cross, or the iron rule of Messiah in the millennium will always show that man fails. He always chooses wrongly. That's why we need a Messiah. Ruin is a reminder. This reminder will be there during the millennial reign of Christ and men still won't learn. People will be born in the millennium. Sinful men will be born. You know, the saints will have their glorified body and will live and reign with Christ and be free from sin. But nations will survive. Christ will rule literally for a thousand years in this earth and kings will come and give their offerings and bring it up to Jerusalem. Men will be born, live and die and still... Uh, those that die won't have be raised until the second resurrection, which is the judgment. Won't live again until after the millennium. But there'll be men and women and families and governments that arise. And we see that at the end, men, even when Christ is ruling with a rod of iron, they still won't obey him. Ruin won't be a reminder. Because the only thing men ever learn from history 
is that men never learn from history. And folks that don't learn, they end up getting the same judgment. And we'll see that in chapter 20. Did you know that even in the new heavens and the new earth, where sin is eradicated and we will live in peace for all of eternity, even in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a ruinous burning that's an eternal reminder, an eternal reminder that the righteous will look upon from a distance and abhor. This idea that hell is complete separation from God or that, it's, that the lake of fire is complete eradication is not biblical. In the very last chapter of Isaiah, chapter 66, this is the verse that Jesus quotes three times in Mark 9 when talking about hell. Verse 22, God says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Israel will have a seed that remains for all of eternity. And so we're in the new heavens and the new earth now, which is after the millennium. And then look at verse 24. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Well, Jesus tells us the worm doesn't die and the fire doesn't quench in the judgment in hell and Gehenna the lake of fire. And it's an eternal burning that will be seen by the righteous from a distance. A reminder from all of eternity. Just like those eternal flames they put up in graves and stuff like that to try to be a reminder of something. That's what it'll be. It won't be completely separated from existence. Now don't be sitting here like, oh, I'm going to have to see this and oh, I'm going to be crying. No, the righteous will rejoice at the judgment of God. And there'll be that distant eternal reminder. Ruin is a reminder. We need those reminders. When you travel and see ancient ruins, it ought to remind us that at some point the glory of man stood here. But this is the end of it. The salt pits of the Dead Sea today remind us of what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Roman ruins. Go to Israel today. You can walk amongst the ruins of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. The three villages that Christ prophesied against and said it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Because if the things had been taught there, the things that had been done there that has been done for you, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Every one of those towns in the Galilee from Jesus' day is nothing but ruin now. Nothing. In fact, Bethsaida is really not even open to the public. You have, you have to sneak in there and walk through the briars and everything. You can walk the steps. Capernaum is nothing but ruin. Old church buildings. wonder what happened there. My sending church in, in Granville County, uh, Living Word Baptist Church, when you come on the property, there's an old graveyard. And then as you walk back into the woods, there's an old set of stairs, concrete stairs that used to be the entrance to an old primitive Baptist church that was there at some time years and years ago. Nothing's left of the building. But you sit there and you wonder, what happened here? What happened here? Why is it gone? What, what took place in that church? What happened that it's ruined? Ruin is a reminder. We ought to look at it and think about these things, but we don't. I'll tell you, I saw an example, and I'll end with this, of a ruinous reminder that we have not learned from. 
Okay, I just want to show you one more image and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, do I still need to? I'm still paired with it. Okay, here was a ruinous reminder here that I stumbled upon on a cold night in Philadelphia. It's in a very old part of town. These houses are old and they're worth a lot of money, but this one is in disarray and disrepair. It's a ruinous reminder of God's judgment. Does anybody have any clue what that is? Anybody ever heard the name Kermit Gosnell? The abortion doctor in Philadelphia that was collecting the fetuses and the heads, he was delivering babies alive and snipping their necks and all. He's in prison now. But this was his home. And I can't remember how long ago that was. Does anybody know? Yeah, I didn't think it was that long ago. But here his little fancy house that he's not living in because he's in prison. He's still getting mail. But that's what it's become. It amazes me how a fancy house in five years' time of no occupation can look like that. Look at this. This is the back side of it. Look at how that's fallen off. That's the end of man. As was done, as he did to so many, it's being done to him right now. Wicked man. Wicked man. That's it. This is, uh, there's his abortion clinic. It's all boarded up right now. See his name up there? Kind of right here on a street corner. A house of horrors, what went on in there. And in Pennsylvania law requires that abortion clinics be inspected randomly to make sure that they are meeting the health codes. And the authorities that are in charge of that were told to stand down with regard to this man by a Republican government. A Republican governor appointed by George W. Bush as the head of Homeland Security. He's the one that told him to stand down and not go in there. And the stuff that went on in there was like, make, make, you know, Nazi concentration camp level stuff. I think the guy finally got caught because a woman he did an abortion on ended up dying the next day. And then he quit play, paying his stericycle bills. The stericycle is the one that comes and picks up the medical waste. And he quit paying them and started storing all the body parts in the refrigerator. Wicked man. And he wouldn't take a plea deal because he arrogantly said, I haven't done anything wrong. I've done a great service to women by butchering their babies. But this is ruin. And when we look at ruin like this, even today, it should be a reminder that God judges sin and that you can boast in your sin and you can do all of this, but this is the end of man. This is the end of the wicked. And when we look at this, it's a shame he's still alive, but when we look at this, we can rejoice that... There is a God that judges in the earth. There is a reward to the righteous. And we need not allow the vanity, brother, the vanities of the day, the wickedness of the day, distract us from what we know is coming. We're commanded to be lights that shine in a dark world. This world system that represents all of this will fall. And everything 
that's around us is not falling down. It's falling into place. And that is the blessed hope of the Redeemer. Christ could come for his church at any time. He could come for his church 50 years before Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel. The Bible doesn't specify. That's why we're told to be ready at any moment. The rapture of God's church. And what God sees in his church today has to grieve him. The church is becoming so useless. And that's when Christ will take it out. It's a glorious thing for the believer. But it's also the sin unto death for the church. And we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Some will be ashamed. Doesn't mean they won't be saved, but they'll be ashamed but we'll be purged and made white so that we can return with him and behold the very things we're seeing written about here.